Jesus later appeared to his disciples along the shore of Lake Tiberias. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, and the brothers James and John were there together with two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. The others said, we will go with you. They went out in their boat, but they did not catch a thing that night. Early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise who he was. Jesus shouted, Friends, have you caught anything? No, they answered. So he told them, Let your net down on the right side of your boat, and you'll catch some fish. They did, and the net was so full of fish that they could not drag it up into the boat. Jesus' favourite disciple told Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on the clothes that he had taken off while he was working. Then he jumped into the water. The boat was only about a hundred metres from shore, so the other disciples stayed in the boat and dragged in the net full of fish. When the disciples got out of the boat, they saw some bread and a charcoal fire with fish on it. Jesus told his disciples, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter got back in the boat and dragged the net to shore. In it were 153 large fish, but still the net did not rip. Jesus said, Come and eat. But none of the disciples did ask who he was. They knew he was the Lord. Jesus took the bread in his hands and gave some of it to his disciples. He did the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from death. When Jesus and his disciples had finished eating, he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than the others do? Simon Peter answered, Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of God, do you love me? Peter answered, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus told him. Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him three times if he loved him. So he told Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus replied, feed my sheep. Thanks, Sam. That was really well read. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. We decided we'd tell you today that I'm pregnant because I feel like my tummy has popped out this week and I thought, everyone's going to be looking at my tummy and going, I wonder if she's pregnant. So, yeah, I'm 11 weeks, for those of you who wanted to know. Um, it's hot, eh? Um, there is uh, a carafe of water at the back and glasses if anyone's dying of thirst and needs to get a glass of water. Today we're going to talk about um, extravagant hospitality. That's what I've called it. And I want you to imagine you've been invited to a good friend's place for dinner. You know them well and you are completely comfortable with them. There are eight other people there, guests who you know, and you arrive and the smells of delicious food are wafting up the driveway before you even get to the front door. The host greets you with a glass of something really yummy and a huge welcoming smile. And the table is beautifully set, the, the music is perfect, the ambience is amazing and the room just is kind of really warm and friendly. And you know that you're going to be in for a good night. Has anyone had a, had a dinner party like that or been to a dinner party like that? Um, the food, of course, is gorgeous with perfectly matched wines and the conversation just flows. 
And before you know it, the night's over. You know, those sorts of nights go really quickly, unfortunately, and then you have to leave. And I think we all agree we love a good dinner party. You don't often get one that's just perfect. Sometimes it's a flop. Sometimes it goes really well when you host it. Um, yeah, I've had, definitely had um, the idea of scrappy hospitality, where the house is still a mess and the food has been a bit burnt or undercooked. Um, but everything still goes well if you've got the right company and people chat and... You know, it, the conversation just flows. And it doesn't actually matter what the place looks like because it's about the, the community that is gathered around the table and gathered around the food. And I'm aware that some people hate the idea of hosting a dinner party. That's totally fine. Um, but if you do love it and you've done it, you will be aware that it's actually quite a costly thing to do, both financially but also time-wise. And you kind of spend hours in the kitchen. And... The food never actually quite tastes the same to the cook because they've been kind of smelling the foods and um, it's kind of like your senses are overloaded by the time the food gets on the table. But it doesn't really matter because you do it for the joy of it. And it's deeply satisfying, I find, anyway. I'm one of the people who loves doing a dinner party. Me too. Yeah, it's awesome. You kind of get a bit exhausted at the end of the night and you think, was it worth it? And then you're like, yeah, it was. It was really great. And I just love seeing people come around a table full of food and the, the conversation that happens. And food does bring people together, doesn't it? We've had a hospitality course at our place um, last month and we had fabulous conversations about community, life together, eating together and caring for this world that God has given us. And the central theme was, of course, food that tied it all together. And we discussed how the animal kingdom all eats to function. Uh, the whole of their bodies and their digestive tracts and the line of their sight is lined with their source of food. If you think about sheep and cows, um, they kind of basically their eyesight is grass, the digestive tract is in line with the grass, the grass goes in, across, and out the other end. We've got lots of sheep, so I've seen this lots of times. Um, dogs are the same. Giraffes, if you think about it, their heads and their lines of sight are at the level of the treetops, which is their food. Uh, primates are probably the only example that don't really fit so, so well. Um, Often food is a source of competition for animals and apart from mothers feeding their baby, you don't often see animals kind of sharing food and looking after one another through over a table. And we're really different, aren't we? We're upright and our main line of sight is one another. It's not our food unless we're standing at the fridge. Um, and eating and communion are really deeply connected. This is partly why we love having pizza together after the service. Um, sure, it's not amazing food, but it's it facilitates community and the building of a fellowship that a cup of tea after a service doesn't quite do to the same degree. I've been amazed at how many times people will just sit and chat for ages and the kids will run around and it's just a really great atmosphere that $5 pizza can bring, to get, bring people together around. Um, so this deep connection between food and communi uh, communication was highlighted for me this year as I nursed Anya actually. When she was born I learned that her, the distance between her face and, sorry, her range of vision was only as far as my face. And so as she lay in my arms um, and was fed, she was in the perfect and necessary position to connect with me as she received her nourishment from me. And connections that are social are just as important to a baby as the milk that she was receiving. And for us as humans, eating and connection are so important. We don't just eat to survive, we actually eat to connect. They're so closely connected. And when we think about it, most of our gatherings together um, where we meet to celebrate are around food. 
think about Christmas. One of the biggest things on people's minds are, what am I going to put on the table? What am I going to serve my guests? What are we all going to bring to Christmas Day lunch? Um, when you meet someone on a date, you're usually having something to eat or a, or a drink. If you catch up with a friend, usually it's over a coffee or a muffin or something like that. And you might go to someone's house or they might come to yours or you might go out together. Because I think eating breaks down social barriers. Um, or it should actually. Masks often lift as people relax around food and uh, as they drink together. And has anyone seen Babette's Feast? It's a, it's a really old but great movie. I'd recommend it. Um, it's about a French woman who cooks an extravagant celebration meal for a group of people who don't actually get on that well and they don't actually have never actually eaten good food in their life and they don't quite understand what's going on. And even at the end of it, they still don't understand the significance that this lady's basically spent her whole fortune just preparing this beautiful meal for this group of undeserving people. But what you see is that the pettiness and the annoyances that have grown up among them disappear as they eat and drink together. And at the end of it, they start forgiving each other and they start resolving their differences and relationships are restored. And it's really, it's a really quite profound movie. So that's a holiday list for you guys. Um, Babette's Feast. Oh, we've got a copy and I think Rose has a copy too if anyone wants to borrow it. I'm not offering roses, but you can bring Oh, have I got your copy? <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a copy around. Otherwise, you'll probably get it from uh, YouTube or something like that. Um, and God is all about this. God is all about food and hospitality. He's the one who created food and hospitality in the first place. And when you look at scripture, like we did on our hospitality course, we see how much God communicates and acts through food. There are significant meals throughout the Old Testament, and many of the laws revolve around food and eating. Jesus basically eats and drinks his way through the New Testament. There are parables and stories and metaphors everywhere, all revolving around food and eating together. What was Jesus' first miracle that revealed his deity? Yeah, producing wine for a dinner party so that everyone could keep talking and socialising and eating together. Um, It wasn't a healing or a deliverance or anything else like that. He simply kept a dinner party going. I picked a random chapter from the Gospel of Luke, and in chapter 13 alone, there are five metaphors to do with food, harvesting food, eating together, and all used to describe the kingdom of God and how God works in the world and what Jesus is, is the points that Jesus is making. And Jesus shares meals with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and other people who would never dream of having a meal with a rabbi, let alone the Son of God. And then... Just like he started his ministry, what's the last thing that Jesus does with his disciples before he goes to be crucified? Yeah, he shares a meal with them in the upper room. He eats and he connects with them. And what's one of the first things Jesus does when he sees the disciples after he's risen? He appears to two of them on the road to Emmaus and he walks and he talks with them. But they don't realise who he is until he sits down and eats with them. He breaks bread and they share a meal together and they're like, oh my gosh, this is Jesus, the son of God. And then he, then he disappears. And then a few days later, as we've heard Amber so beautifully read from John's Gospel, he sees other disciples fishing and he calls them in from their boats and invites them to come and have breakfast with him on a beach. And I don't know if you've had charcoal grilled fish before. Graham's got a weather, which she uses charcoal. And it is amazing. It just tastes so good. Imagine being called by the Son of God to come and have breakfast with him on a beach. I guess the ultimate. It's amazing. Freshly baked bread and and fish with him. See, Jesus knew that eating and drinking with the disciples was the best way he could really connect with them and them with him. 
And after the meal on the beach, Jesus commissions Peter. Peter doesn't know it yet, but he's going to become the pillar of the new church. And Jesus commissions him by instructing him to feed his sheep. Another feeding metaphor. And then right before he dies, remember going back to that Passover meal, seated around a table full of food in the upper room, Jesus connected with his disciples and needed to explain some really important truths about who he was. He explained he was the feast. He was the new wine. He was the new bread. Now, I don't know if any of you have thought about this, but remember in a Passover meal, uh, they traditionally ate lamb to signify the lamb that was slaughtered and the blood was put over the lintel of the doorpost um, so that the people were passed over and when they left Egypt. But lamb is not mentioned in the scriptures at this meal, the Passover meal. I'm sure they would have been eating it because they would have prepared a Passover meal as they normally would have. But Jesus doesn't point out the lamb. He doesn't point out, we don't, yeah, he doesn't say, he, I am the lamb, or I, he, he just talks about the wine and the bread. And that is because he is the lamb that is about to be slain, and he is the ultimate Passover lamb. This communion meal, the Eucharist, really represents the crux of the whole gospel, doesn't it? A meal which represents Jesus, and he is the ultimate extravagant host. His instruction to them was, and as we read every time we have communion, which we're going to do shortly, was to, and is to, drink from the cup and eat the bread to remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us, and that we need to continually eat and drink from the person of Jesus every day. He is our daily bread. But communion doesn't involve lamb. We have bread and wine, but we don't have to all eat little bits of lamb when we come up. Thank goodness, because that would be a lot of work. We don't need to eat the lamb because the price has already been paid. There are no more sacrificial lambs needed. Let's look back in our memory to the very beginning of the Bible, the biblical story. And in Genesis we have Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden full of bountiful food-giving trees. And God tells them, you guys have got more than enough. You've got so much food. Everything you need is here. There's just one tree that you cannot eat from. And we know what do they do. They took it and they ate. They took and ate. They grasped after food which was not theirs to take. That wasn't on the table on offer. The host had not served that up to them. They sinned through a meal. And we know obviously that they were banished from the garden at that point and they couldn't take from the tree of life which meant that they wouldn't keep on living and stay stuck in that sinful state forever. And now when you come back to the Eucharist knowing that story or the communion as we call it, the way God redeems us from Adam and Eve's sin is through another meal, through the extravagant display of hospitality ever. He gives us his son on the table. He sacrifices his own son and he invites us to take and eat. You don't have to to grab and grasp, but it's an invitation to take and eat. And we see at the end of the story in Revelation, the tree of life is now available to all, with different fruits producing different trees producing fruit every month so that we can live in a saved state eternally and most importantly in God's presence. Jesus says, eat me, I am the bread of life. I am the Passover lamb. I am the new wine. Do not get drunk on wine, but drink deeply in the Holy Spirit. It's all really about here at Abide, drinking deeply in the Holy Spirit. Come to the table. All are welcome. I have put on the most extravagant feast ever. The table is set decorations and the music of my creation are here. Come to the table and eat and live. 
I am the ultimate host, you do not need to bring anything. Often in New Zealand when we have a dinner party or we go to a dinner party, we feel like we have to bring something or the host asks us to bring something. But at God's table we can't bring anything. He's provided it all, the whole feast is laid out. There is nothing he needs or he wants other than our presence and our company. He calls us, come to the table and commune with me. Come to the table and have a dinner party with me. And just like Anya makes deep connections with me as she nurses, we too make deep connections with God as we take communion. Yeah, it is a reminder of what he's done as a sacrifice, but it's also so much more. It's a chance or a posture of being the guest at the Lord's table. It takes humility to eat at someone's table, and it takes humility to eat on the person of Christ. But it's the only way we can live. Why am I talking about this at Christmas time? I could talk about this any time of the year. Well, this is when the dinner, first, dinner invitation first went out, to dine at the Lord's table. Jesus was born, and as we said last week, and as you all know, Christmas is the beginning of the Easter story. Who was invited to the Lord's table first? A bunch of lonely shepherds on a hill, tending their sheep, invited into a stinky stable at the bottom of an overcrowded inn. And then three foreigners, three aliens, Magi, who were different to Mary and Joseph, they were invited. This is who the Lord invited first to his table to see the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus, who represents the extravagant hospitality of God. And who did Jesus continue to reveal himself to? and invite to the table in his ministry. The sick, the lepers, the outcasts, those who felt that they were least worthy. The ultimate host gave himself, himself, to eat. Invites us, every one of us, to his table. We often feel like we're unworthy or um, we might not be dressed up enough for that dinner party, we're not good enough, we're not eloquent enough. But that's not the sort of host that God is. If you look um, in Luke, Jesus explains that true hospitality is not a show or a chance to prove yourself to your friends. Hospitality is all about extending the seats at your table to those who would value themselves unworthy and making them feel welcome. In Luke 14, Jesus says to us, said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or family, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And as I wrote this, I realised the challenge to me afresh. How many times do I invite friends and family around just to our, our dinner table and not really invite who Jesus represents, the poor, the crippled, the lame, those who can't invite me back? And even um, the ring-ins that were invited to Christmas lunch, um, they're not family, but they're friends. They're people who we know and people who we know through other people. I have such deep respect for whoever those people are who go to soup kitchens and community centres on Christmas Day, and I'd love to do that one year. Extending hospitality in a way that God says really is, is the right way to do it. It'd be great for us as a church as we move into the next year to begin to think how we can extend our hospitality to the community around us. Yes, we do need to build our fellowship, and that's what we're focusing on at the moment, but we also need to be salt in the community. Salt only works if it comes into contact with the food that it's supposed to be preserving or enriching. And as I finish, I want to come back to the point I touched on before about all of us being invited to the Lord's table, whether we feel worthy or not. God entered the world at Christmas time for the purpose of offering himself as an act of the most extravagant hospitality ever. 
He is the host and the meal. And as we take communion together shortly, let's remember the model of hospitality that God demonstrates. George Herbert wrote this um, beautiful poem in the 17th century, and Rose should have, I think Rose was giving them out at the door, if you want to find that. I think it captures uh, hospitality of God so brilliantly and beautifully, and we've um, got it on the screen as well, I think, if you can't find it. Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. That quick-eyed love, observing me, grow slack from my first entrance in drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my eat, my meat. So I did sit and eat. Shortly we're going to invite you to the table of the Lord to take communion. This is the last communion we're going to be having this year. And as you come up, I'd like you to reflect on the connection that you make with God and the posture in which you take the bread and wine. Your spiritual posture, of course. An openness, not just to remember, but also to connect. If we take communion as a religious exercise and don't think much more about it, we miss out on so much. Just like newborn babies make a significant connection with their mums when they nurse, we too make significant connections with God as we take communion and we partake in the hospitality, the extravagant hospitality that he offers.